You adulterous people. <laughs> Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Uh, I had originally planned to tackle chapter 4 over two Sundays. Uh, last Sunday was to be James 4, 1 to 12, and this Sunday was to be 13 to 17. But we did something different for Father's Day last Sunday, which was special. Um, so I kind of had one Sunday to, to cover off chapter 12. So I've kind of taken the middle section. And uh, I know that the groups that are following along the series will cover the rest of the chapter. But uh, many commentators actually refer to this particular section, 4 to 10, as kind of the heart Uh, not only of chapter 4, but indeed of the whole letter of James, some really important stuff to cover off here. Uh, So thank you, Pam, for reading to us. Here is, what I'm going to do is give you kind of my summary of of what's just been read, of 4, 4 to 10, and then um, we'll pray, and then we'll just walk through um, the verses as we've been doing as we go through the book of James. God wants deep, lasting loyal, undivided relationship with his people. He is a jealous God and tolerates no rival. He is greatly affected when the affection of our hearts turn away from him towards something else or someone else. As sinful people who do not always place God on the throne of our hearts, we need to repent when we turn away from him and his ways and turn to the ways of the world. And just like the father of the prodigal son, God is always ready with arms wide open for a returning son or daughter. Therefore, turn back in humility and be lifted up into the loving and merciful arms of your heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord, as we come now to your word, to this particular passage in the book of James, Pray, God, that we might have open hearts, open ears, open minds to what it is you would say to us. We invite your Holy Spirit to come and illuminate your word and to make it real for us here and now. 
We pray that your spirit would do a work within each one of us, bringing us to our knees in humility and repentance in order that we may be lifted up into your arms of goodness and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've kind of got the luxury of just walking through these six, seven verses together. So let's start by looking at verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. In verse 4, James's usual loving pastoral tone of my dear brothers and sisters has taken a sharp turn. You adulterous people, he says. What a contrast. What a shift. He's speaking to the same group of people, but his language has changed dramatically. James, in this particular section, 4 to 10, James draws heavily on Old Testament language and imagery to convey a very strong message to his readership. Every verse from verses 4 to 10 has Old Testament image and analogy going on. He's wanting to communicate this to those who are reading this for the, or hearing this for the first time. On several occasions, the prophets of Israel referred to the Israelites as adulterers, referring to their uh, affairs with the gods of other nations, if you like. Their hearts had turned away from Yahweh and had turned towards their own selfish motives and sinful desires, which had overtaken them. James is now likening his New Testament audience to the wayward Israelites. This is not a light rebuke. It is deadly serious. Now, because James is a circular letter written to all believers, it is fair to say, I think, that he is not he doesn't have just one particular group, one particular local gathering in mind. He doesn't have one particular issue in mind when he says, you adulterous people. Upon reflection, I think James is addressing the human condition. Even with our best intentions to follow after God, Our sinful nature has a nasty habit of sidetracking us. We get so easily sucked in to the gloss and the glamour of the world. The false gods of sensuality, pleasure and wealth are just as appealing today as they were in James's day. Now, we know from our previous studies in James that he keeps coming back to the heart. And I think what he's addressing here is the heart. You know, the heart that is chasing after God and then can so easily get sidetracked by the attraction of the world. And James offers a stern warning, reminding his readers that everyone has a choice to make. You can be a friend with the world, 
or you can be a friend with God, but you cannot have both. (laughs) According to James, to be a friend, to be friends with the world is in fact to be hostile towards God. But hang on a minute. Doesn't the Bible teach that God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son for it? So what does James mean when he says, do not be friends with the world? Well, the Greek word cosmos, translated world, has different shades in Scripture. And it's helpful for us to understand two in particular. The natural world, created and sustained by God, expressed, uh, his, expresses his character in its beauty and splendor. In this creation, humankind has a special responsibility to fulfill the divine mandate to rule over all the earth and all the creatures of the earth as instructed in Genesis 1, 26. In this sense, the world comes to mean the entire human race, uh, both the top and the bottom end of the created order. This is the world that God loves, his created world, both nature and people. This is who God sent his son to rescue and redeem. However, in the instance of James 4, 4, James is referring to the life of human society as organized under the power of evil. The Bible tells us that the world is under the authority of Satan. He is the prince of this world. He has, this world is his sphere of influence. The world, therefore, in this instance, is a term for all of those who are part of the kingdom of darkness and have not yet been born of God. This does not mean by any means that we don't love people of the world. God sent Jesus for all men and women, boys and girls, and it is his desire that none should be separated from him eternally. Like Jesus, we are to unconditionally love people into God's kingdom. So viewed as people, the world must be loved. But understood as an evil system organized under the dominion or the reign of Satan, then the world is not to be loved. Love for the Father and love for the world are mutually exclusive. If someone is passionate in their outlooks and pursuits of this world, which rejects Christ, uh, then it is evident that the love of Christ does not dwell in them. And this is why James reminds his readers that to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. And at this point, I think it's fair to say that Satan is so cunning, isn't he? And, and when we think of the world, he, he'll, he'll, he'll sort of suck us in <laughs> uh, very cunningly. 
and we can so easily get off track and our eyes have been taken away from Christ and they're now on things of this world. No one here, no one here is immune from this. And I have to remind you, James is writing to people just like you and I. (laughs) He's writing to brothers and sisters, the, the gathered people of God. Now, we might not make a deliberate choice to be an enemy of God. But what James teaches here is that if we befriend the world, then in fact we have become hostile towards God and become an enemy of God. And the more I think about that term, an enemy of God, the more disturbing it becomes. I don't know about you, but that's not a situation I want to find myself in as an enemy of God. We need to be intentional about choosing and maintaining friendship with God as our first priority. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Him. And we need to ensure that our relationship with Christ is what dominates and is what shapes the way we live our lives every single day. Now, I think about my relationship. I always find it helpful. I don't know about you. When I'm thinking about a relationship with God, I find it helpful to think about my relationship with Bron. Because here on earth, it is the closest relationship that I share with another person. Bron and I live together. We share a bed together. It's a very intimate relationship, the relationship between a husband and a wife. We see each other every day. We talk, we interact, we work together as a team. Now, this is the intimacy of a husband and wife. God desires intimacy with his people, connection, relationship. It's not a casual affair that he is interested in. So think about, for those of us who are married or have been, even if you haven't, I'm sure you can still think about the intimacy of that relationship. What God longs for with his people is that kind of connection. Daily communication, heart-to-heart sharing, vulnerable, naked, completely honest before the other person. This is the kind of relationship God desires. Not a casual friendship where you might occasionally catch up for a cuppa. Intimate. Working together. Sharing. Um, This is what God is longing for. And it breaks his heart when what we offer him is the casual friendship. He's looking for intimacy, connection, right relationship. Let's keep moving. Verse 5 and 6. Well, do you think Scripture says without reason 
that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God desires to be number one in the lives of believers. In fact, scripture indicates that he is jealous when anyone or anything else takes that place. He is a jealous God when he sees his children having an affair with the world. It's a powerful thought, isn't it? And again, the Bible uses the imagery of marriage. An affair is a complete betrayal of that closest relationship. And it's scary to think that when we get sidetracked by the evil one and our focus is taken away from God and and, and now it's projected to things of this world, that we are in effect entertaining or having an affair, an adulterous relationship with the world. And James says, you adulterous people. So the assumption there is that they're in it, they're doing it, they're having the affair. It's not just something they're considering or contemplating, but they're having it. And let me state again, he's writing to believers like you and I. These are not people who have not yet placed their trust and faith in Jesus. These are people who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in their hearts. James is referring to them as adulterous people. I like how the message translation puts it. It says, you're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God and his way. And do you suppose God doesn't care? The proverb has it that he's a fiercely jealous lover. And what he gives in love is far better than anything else you'll find. It's common knowledge that God goes against the willful proud. God gives grace to the willing, humble. God is a fiercely jealous lover. He wants the allegiance and affection of the hearts of those who are his. And after everything that he has done, most notably sending his son, Jesus, to die for our sins in order that right relationship with him might be restored, it seems completely fair that he would have that jealous desire for those who are his. In fact, if you dwell upon it, it's somewhat heartwarming to think about just how much God loves his children. He loves us so much that when our hearts turn away from him, he becomes fiercely jealous. Now, the point James is wanting to make is not that God is some fierce or abusive figure 
that we need to fear when we go off track, but rather that he is an approachable father to those who humble themselves before him in full confidence that he shows favour to anyone who turns to him in humility and repentance. Verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. The words submit yourself to God are like a, a heading, a summary statement of everything else that will follow. And then true submission involves all of the things that are mentioned in verses 7 to 10. What comes to your mind when you hear the word resist the devil? Um, we've got these two words here. There's, there's submit, submission, uh, and then there's resist. Now, when I think of the word submission, I'm probably thinking there's a, there's a little bit more of a, a passive kind of, I'm going to submit myself to you. Like, there's a higher authority that I am going to become subservient to. But when I hear the word resist, there's a sense of needing to be firm, stand, stand your ground. It's a different posture to submission, isn't it? So we're to submit to God. And in that posture of submission, there's room to stand firm and resist the devil. quite like that, mm, I'm going to resist the devil. You know, there's, 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 there's strength, there's effort, there's energy, there's determination. There's a battle that's going on and I'm going to get involved. I'm going to stand and resist the devil. There's sweat in resisting the devil. It's not passive. It's active. Now, can we, in and of our own strength, resist the devil? No. There is a sense that when we are prepared to stand our ground, God stands with us. In fact, God stands in us and the evil one will flee. Verses 8 to 9 speak of genuine repentance. And again, James draws heavily on an Old Testament expression of repentance. Verse 8, come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Compare this with Joel chapter 2, 12 and 13. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your 
heart. Remember, God's interested in our hearts. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Let's come back to that first section of verse 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. When we begin to move closer to God, we realize that he is always there and that he was close by to us all along. David makes his truth clear in Psalm 139. Here's a section where he said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. We can be as close to God as we want because he is there all the time. It's important to be reminded Even when we don't feel like he's there, he is. His word promises and assures us that he is closer than we can imagine. In those times, a helpful image is to think of God as that loving father or parent who's just behind a little toddler who's about to take their first steps. That little baby or toddler is focused on on, on what's in front of them. And they may very well lose sight of the fact that there's a loving Father right behind them, ready at any moment to catch them, to pick them up, to cuddle them, to reassure them of his presence. Such a helpful image. But how often when we are just, we're fixed on what's in front of us, we can so easily lose sight of our loving Father who's right there behind us. And all it takes is just a turning and God is there. Just a turning. Come near to God. You just turn And he comes near to you because he is near you. It's a powerful image. And it connects so nicely with the the parable from last Sunday, doesn't it? That the running father with open arms. This is the picture of God that Jesus offers to us. In order to draw close to God, well, firstly, we have to have received Christ as our Lord and Saviour. And this is the beginning of that beautiful, intimate relationship that we spoke of earlier. But a, a relationship of intimacy, a relationship that is close and growing and meaningful, takes work. You don't just get married 
and go, well, that's that. And then just exist together. What kind of a relationship is that going to be? You've got to keep working on it. You've got to keep spending time together. You keep growing. I love this woman more now than I did 16 years ago. I'm sure married couples in this room could attest to the same thing. God's intention and desire for relationships is that they would keep growing. It's a beautiful thing, isn't it? To have a blossoming relationship. It's beautiful. This is what God longs for for us. Our relationship with him would continue to blossom and grow. But in order for it to do so, there's got to be some effort that is put in. And not an effort to earn salvation, but an effort that says, I just love spending time with you, so I'm going to make that a priority. We're going to try and find a babysitter so we can go out for dinner because we want to connect. You know, when you've got young children, there there are challenges for a husband and wife to have time together. Now, there's always challenges in our relationship with God, isn't there? People will say, I'm too busy to read the Bible. No, you're not. I'm too busy to pray. No, you're not. I'm too busy to go to church and fellowship with God's people. No, you're not. You're just making choices. <laughs> That's what it is. Let's just call it for what it is. Now, there are all kinds of ways that we grow in intimacy with God. One of those ways, I think, is being out in his great book of nature, being in creation. Isn't that a wonderful way to feel close to God? Just being in the beauty of his creation. And how privileged are we to live in such a beautiful part of the world where we can just see God's glory. You know, going for an intentional walk in God's creation or a jog or whatever it might be and actually just celebrating in the goodness of God is is one of my favorite ways of drawing close to God. It's not just about what we would consider to be religious practices, And God's designed us, he's placed us in this world. And so when we enjoy the beauty of his world, maybe through travel as well, and we get to see just the tapestry of of his masterpiece. Um, You know, there's a wonderful sense there of being able to draw close to God. But it's so much about our heart posture towards that. But of course, if we want to know God, if we want to follow his ways and understand his will, we need to become students of his word. We need to read God's Word. We need to understand it. We need to apply it. And of course, just like a couple will spend time talking to one another, we need to talk to God through prayer. So all of these are ways that we can draw close to God. And God has wired each of us differently. Some of us will draw close to God through the singing of songs of praise and worship. Some of us will draw close to God through quiet moments of calm, peaceful intimacy. Some of us, as I mentioned, will draw close to God through creation. There's all kinds of ways that we can draw close to God, but I think the key is intentionality. You know, if a husband and wife, or even a, a, if close friends are going to grow a friendship, they've got to make time and, and make that effort. And it's the same with God. If we make time to be in his presence, we will know his presence and his closeness. 
Now, in the next breath, James has a huge emphasis on genuine repentance. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Washing our heart hands and purifying our hearts are kind of classic Old Testament expressions that lead to God's mercy and cleansing. Washing our hands refers to washing the outside, meaning our actions. Purifying our hearts means cleaning the inside, and that's our attitude. In short, James is saying, clean up your actions and your attitude. Clean up your life by repenting from sin and confessing to God. Now, it's important to note that we don't have to clean up our act before we come to God. We can't. But as we come to God with a genuine humility, then the fruit of repentance is changed actions and changed attitudes. Confession, which has kind of become a lost practice, even towards God, I think. Just confessing towards God. Confession is good for the soul. 1 John 1, 8, 9 is a passage that offers us great assurance. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. No matter how great our sin is, God's grace is always greater. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, in John 19.30, he said, It is finished. And Jesus said that because his death on the cross paid the price in full for all our sins. When you receive Jesus, you receive the grace of God. Verse 10 sums it up so perfectly. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Here is the key thought I want you to take away today. God desires intimacy with his children. He wants loyal, undivided relationship. The gateway to intimacy is humility. The gateway to intimacy is humility. If we get down on our knees in humble repentance each time we allow the pleasures and the pursuits of this world to captivate our hearts, then God will lift us up, draw us into his arms. Amen. You know, we've been talking today a lot about sin, and you guys can come up. I'm just so aware that 
This is a word that we don't speak of a lot in church these days. Um, We're a lot more comfortable talking about God's love and God's grace and God's generosity and goodness, and that's we need to talk about those things. But there's such a reality that we kind of... We're doing ourselves a disfavour by neglecting to talk about the reality of sin. And James pulls no... He holds nothing back. You adulterous people, he says. And I can't help but read that and feel a sense um, of the weight of sin in my life. You know, it's easy to read this and kind of... Again, a little bit like the Pharisee um, and the tax collector... So glad I'm not like the Pharisee and we've become the Pharisee. And I'm so glad I'm not the adulterous sinner. I am an adulterous sinner before God. I love the Lord, but the reality of sin in my life is that I get taken down other paths. And so do you. And so I actually want to, I don't want to just talk about this hypothetically. And I'm going to invite anyone who would like to join me um, as as a sign of humbly repenting before God to kneel. So I'm going to kneel and lead us in a prayer. Not everyone can physically do that, and that's fine. If, If you can just even kneel in your heart, I'm just going to kneel and say a prayer of confession and repentance on on behalf of all of us as God's people and seek his forgiveness. Can we humble ourselves before God, kneel before his throne of grace? Let's do that together now. Your word says to submit to you, Lord. And I think that kneeling is such an appropriate physical posture of submitting to a holy God. You are a good and loving and gracious God. And we thank you that you are that loving Father whose arms are wide open. But you are also a holy, jealous God who will not tolerate your children having adulterous affairs with the world. We recognize that we are in a spiritual battle And we come now, Lord, in a posture of humility and repentance. And we just take a moment now for each knee or for each heart that is bowed. We just take a moment in our hearts and in our minds to confess and repent of the ways that we have had affairs with the world, the ways that we have turned our hearts from you and turned towards sinful, sensual pleasures.
we confess to you, Lord, and we repent of our sin. We humble ourselves before you. We pray that you would cleanse our hands and cleanse our hearts. Bring healing and forgiveness. That we might be made, that we might be made right with you and enjoy the intimacy of the relationship you desire with us. We thank you for Jesus, for his death and resurrection, that because of what Christ has done, we can be made right with you, God. So, Lord, now we know that as we humble ourselves, you will lift us up, you will draw us close, we thank you for that wonderful, close relationship that you desire with us. Lord, may we walk closer with you today and each day that follows as we remain humble towards you and walk humbly with you, our Lord and our God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.